Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the 1st, 2018. This is episode 2230 of the Survival Podcast. We have crossed into June, the sixth month of the year, halfway through the year. It is a Friday. I will save the lecture on the ticking of the clock because we did that yesterday. But I will tell you this, it won't be that long and I'll be coming here and going, it's over, half of the year is over, It's gonna, June is going to like that, guys. I mean, kids are out of school, all kinds of stuff. Jack's going on vacation for a few days to soak his butt in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll have rewinds during that period. we got another week of shows at least heading uh, your way, though, that are new ones and on our regularly scheduled programming, as the cliche goes. Today we do have our regularly scheduled programming, Is it giving, given that it is a Friday, 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 I have stuff from the expert counsel for you. Today I have how to size a sill for a maximum rain event with Jeff Lawton. When we get into that, I'll, I'll give the, uh, the 101 on what sales swells, sales swells and sills are for those that might be new to the concept. I have pest prevention and hive growth with the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan. I'm dealing with a nail fungal infection with Doc Bones when you can't just go get the Lamisil for the Lamisil monster from prescription medications. Cooling of rabbits and rabbit cages designed with Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. And I have a section I'm calling of CPAPs going off grid and being out of shape with Stephen Harris, a classic Harris rant. And he's asked me for some follow-up on that segment, so I'll do that. But I have a, a segment today for you that's kind of... Unique, I guess. I don't know that I've ever done this before. I say that I don't do consulting anymore, and I don't. I don't do business consulting anymore. Please don't ask. However, I do have some friends that occasionally I will treat as though I was doing consulting for them, and I will do something like uh, writing up a brief. Usually no more than two pages. I charge no money for it because in, in, in my experience... And one of the things that made me miserable as a consultant is people tend not to take your action items. And this particular one was a customer, I guess client, partner, friend. It would be all of those things have filled in in the past. My buddy Neil Franklin that really wanted material for himself for his own presentation. So I know who will use it, so I did it. So you'll get to hear exactly how I respond to a simple question from someone who's asking me for consultation on a more professional level. And I, I think maybe that'll be useful for you guys. And it's about blockchain. So I think that's something that's going to affect all our lives. And you may today, after hearing my response to this question, understand the impact of blockchain at a higher level than you ever have before. And you might understand why I've put so much time into making sure people are aware of things like cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies over the past few years because of how radical the changes are going to be. And we are just at the precipice of this and the edge of this actually happening. So we'll have all of that and more for you. And, well, right now I don't have a sponsor segment for you today, and I do not have a year in history for you today. So we'll go straight into the first question. This one is for Jeff Lawton on sizing a sill 
for a swale based on your maximum rain event. This was one I kind of took a stab at and said, I'm going to send this off to the expert on calculations for stuff like this, Jeff Lawton, and he was good enough to come back with an answer. The intro to this, for those that may not be familiar because Jeff doesn't go into it at all, what is a swale? A swale is a ditch, easiest way to think of it, on contour. That means it is a level ditch. That means it does not move water. That means it spread. I guess it does move water, but it doesn't move it from direction one, you know, position A to position B, like most ditches move it down the road. It spreads it out evenly. And there's a lot of reasons we do that, but one thing we do is we help with drought resistance, drought proofing. We can move water into dams with that type of technology. We can actually fix places where the, the places get too muddy and too wet and too damp, and also fix places that dry out too quickly. There's a lot of stuff we can do. We can reduce erosion. We can create deposition traps that build up fertility. There's just a ton of stuff, but to understand this question, just understand that a swale is a ditch that follows a contour line. If you think of a contour map, you look down at a line on the contour map, and it's 880 feet on that line, and everywhere that line goes stays level. You the side of a mountain, it's got a level edge that it follows. A sill, since it's a ditch... We dig the dirt out of the ditch. We put the dirt on the downhill side of the ditch. The dirt that we put there in a pile does not hold the water in the ditch. Most ditches, they take the dirt away. The ditch holds the water. But at some point, we'll, we will not pile up dirt on the downhill side. We'll leave an opening. And then we'll compress or we'll move the ditch slightly forward to lower the height of that area. And we will make a perfectly level overflow point. And when that ditch exceeds how much water it can hold and infiltrate into the land, it, the water sheets across that sill, or I'll just call it a level sill spillway, including for filling a dam when the dam can no longer have any more water, we can overflow the dam. Most people have seen sills at dams. You see a concrete structure at a, at a sizable dam where the water overflows. Well, the difference with using a swale to fill the dam is the place the dam overflows could be a thousand yards away. Or a mile away, honestly, depending on how much land you have and what you're doing with it. It's a pretty cool concept. We have to take a lot of things into account when we do this, and one is how much freaking rain can we possibly get at this location? Not how much rain do we get on average, not what is our average most rain, but historically, what is our 100-year rain event? What does a flood look like here, and how do we handle it? And, and what I said last time was, on some levels, this question may not be as important as we think that it is if we're in a place where if we get that rain event, the house is 12 feet underwater. At that point, since the water is above the trees, and that does happen in certain locations, well, you know, we still need to plan for that on the size of that silway because we may not be in that position. We may not be getting on Noah's Ark. So that's the, that's the, the foreground for this one. And with that, Jeff, please explain to us how we take that 100-year rain event and use it to calculate the size of our spillway. Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And we have a question here from Josh Reynolds in relation to the length of spillway, level sill spillway, that is. Um, how do you calculate that? Um, Josh is in Southeast Texas um, with a maximum rain of 22 inches in 24 hours. Um, set by uh, Tropical Storm Claudette in 1979, um, which also holds uh, the, the record for the most rain in the USA in one day. So um, 
they're looking at uh, very large rain events in the past two years, and he just wants to know that uh, calculation. So what you do is you uh, look at the uh, square area of catchment in easiest done metric in metres and do a calculation that way and then convert it back to um, gallons or pints if you want. Metric's so much easier because it's just decimal. Um, so he has uh, 17,000 square metres of area and a maximum occurrence of um, 101 millimetres in 24 hours. Those are the figures he's given us. And he's got the calculation right. Um, it's uh, 216 litres per second has to be released out of a spillway. Now let me tell the listeners how you do this, just so everybody knows. So his catchment is um, 17,000 square metres, and um, the maximum rain event is 1,100 millimetres, which is 1.1 metres um, in rain. So you, what you do is you, you multiply one, 17,000 square metres by 1.1 and that gives you the total volume in 24 hours. Then you divide it by 24 to get your hourly occurrence. And then you divide that answer by 60 to get the minutes, um, how much water per minute needs to go over the spillway. And then you divide that by 60 again to get the volume of water per second, which in this calculation comes to 0.216 cubic metres. Now, there's a 1,000 litres in a cubic metre, so that literally translates the 0.216 to litres. That's 216 litres per second. Now, what I normally do is I get a... Um, a to over-calculate, because we are over-calculating here, we're calculating as if the catchment is a sheet of glass, has no um, soakage and, and no obstructions in the flow of water. And we know how to calculate our catchment because water moves at right angle to contour, so we've got a contour map and we move uphill, drawing lines at right angle to contour from our dam or our swale dam or just our swale uphill Everything that's moving right on an angle to contour from each contour line to the base of the previous arrow downhill gives you a catchment area. And then you just have to work out what that area is. So Josh has done all that and he's got the calculation right. What I normally do then to overcalculate is get one litre bottles of water, the type that you buy in the shop, doesn't matter if it's one, one and a half litres, and lie them sideways and imagine that much water going across the spillway in one second, which is the count of 1,000. So if you're counting in thousands, these are seconds, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Now, because we're looking at a second, one second, we can imagine the water going over the spillway in one second. So if we get a one-litre bottle of water and lie it sideways, so it's, it's, it's bottom to top, is going at right angles to contour over the spillway and we lie them side by side so that's the, the diameter of the bottle not the length of the bottle the diameter of the bottle if we lie them side by side or just you don't have to do that you can measure the diameter of a one, standard one litre bottle of water or you can 1.5 means you're over calculating and then you then you measure that and you need 216 times 
that distance of level sill. So let's say they're, they're four to five inches. It's 216 times four to five inches if you want to come back to uh, an imperial measurement. I hope that helps. It works pretty well. You're definitely ensuring that you're never going to get any erosion. You're pacifying all the water overflow. You're over-calculating for the largest event. And you can't really go wrong if you use that as a, as a not particularly super accurate, but a very practical way of understanding and measuring the water runoff from larger storm events using a level seal spillway because level pacifies water all the time. So let, let's talk about some practicality with that. I, I, I completely understand the math that Jeff did there. Uh, and what have you, but let's let's do that. Uh, what Jeff said we needed to do in this particular instance was 216 times 4 to 5 inches. Well, let's do that with um, the, the lower number, 4. 216 times 4, that's 864. Well, if we divide that by 12 to get our feet, it would be 72 feet of spillway. In many instances, we might only be putting in... Pfft, I don't know, 100 feet of swell. Now, 100 feet of swell probably would never come up to that level of calculation. But you get what I'm saying. Like 72 feet of sill may not be directly doable. So we we can do a lot of things with that. We can we can part out that 72 feet. Uh, a lot of times we'll do something like a 3 meters is, is a, a pretty standard sill for your primary sill. Uh, but, you know, you're looking at about 10 feet. So we have 62 feet to go. Well, a lot of times we'll also design our swales so that our ends of our sills, our ends of our swales, our, 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 our far ends are also acting as sills. Uh, and they might be secondary. They might not be quite as low as the first sill. Uh, but if we have a 9-foot wide swale, then we have another 18 feet right there. And maybe we put a stand-up pipe in, and then we do a calculation to, well, how much water can this stand-up pipe that's doing a direct discharge do as a tertiary. So this gets a little bit complicated, and that's why I said you might want to get some engineering help in. And then we also have to do, like I said, the practical assessment. If we end up with our 100-year rain event, if that reoccurs, what does the ground around us look like? If we are in an event where, if we get that rain event, the water is three foot deep everywhere, well, then all of this becomes moot because there is no longer a place for the water to be sheeting over. So we, we also have to look at, like, well, where are we and what do these rain events mean for us? Because there's a point where it stops being relevant, if that makes sense. It's, it ceases to be relevant. You have exceeded the capacity of a land to the point where people are climbing onto their roofs. Uh, your sill is five feet underwater, it doesn't matter how wide it is anymore. So I think, to me, I've always tried to sanity check this type of extreme planning back against reality. And if you're in a higher elevation where you're not going to flood out, then by God, you need to do this design based on that event. If you're in a place where there's a point where you do end up with water above the door frame then some point along the way you draw the line and say, at this point it's no longer relevant to me. And I think that's just a practical way of looking at things because I can't see being worried about getting you know, 12 feet of rainfall 
if 12 feet of rainfall means that your house is underwater, it doesn't matter what your sill is. So I, I always want to come back against that. But Jeff gave you the exact way to figure things out, and it is a very good way to do things. And like I said, you can get close. Uh, let, let's look at trying to get to 72 feet with multiple spillways uh, across a swale that's, let's say, nine feet wide and a thousand feet long. So if we go to a, let's say we put in two sills of 12 feet each, we got 48 feet. And then if we design the sides of our swells, assuming they don't spill into a dam, or assuming that along that thousand feet of swale, there's two, it's really two swells with a dam or multiple dams interconnected, then we have another 18 feet. Right there we're at 66 feet. Right there we're at 66 feet. So if, you, if the swale's large enough, these numbers, even though they seem extreme, do work out. If we were to put in several stand-up pipes as tertiary overflows into that swale, we would have done the best we could for even the most extreme event. When you're doing smaller swales, my swales here on the property are about 6 foot wide and about 11 inches deep, and there's over 500 feet in total swale, but the longest swale is about 230 feet, if I remember right. We just did 2-meter spillways with the ends designed to overflow. And again, if we exceed the capacity of those swells sufficiently for there to be a problem, we have a different problem, i.e., I'm climbing up to at least the second floor. <laughs> so there's, there's always the common sense approach to back, backfilling this stuff. Next up, I have a question for pest prevention and hive growth for Michael Jordan. Hey, everybody. It's your pocket beekeeping guide, Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer, AB friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hey, I've been taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of fine meads. So I have a general topic that's been coming up from a different couple of questions. They're all asking kind of some different things, but kind of the same. So we're going to go right off, and this is going to be called preventative maintenance for pests and what to do when you get started. And that's the only way I can describe, describe this because right now you've either got your package of bees or nook and you've already installed them in your hive. Or you're coming out of the winter and into spring and you're getting ready to do something with your bees. So we're going to start with the easiest and work up. And this is going to help with your pest management, propagation of bees, reducing of swarms, and just general guidelines of getting started. So now that you've gotten your bees and you've installed them in your Hive, top bar, Langstroth, Perone. Remember, it's not the hive, it's the keeper. Once you get those in there, hopefully you've been feeding them a good sugar mix with some antibiotics, some minerals and stuff in it to help them grow great wax. Without this feeding, they will have a hard time making enough wax for the queen to lay from a package. Also, make sure you're checking your pollen and your pollen counts coming in, meaning hopefully bees are coming in, bringing in pollen as you're feeding this sugar water for them to build wax. This lets us know they are making brood food known as bee bread. This means that they're ready to start having the queen lay to make a general population of brood. This is great. Now we want to make sure the wax is being built and that they're storing pollen and getting ready. Now if you've installed a nook, that means you're going to have 
bees already hatching and starting to come out. And this probably means at this time you're already to add another box on top. You're looking for at least five to six frames of brood that's been laid already by a queen from a nook. That they've probably rolled out at least seven out of ten frames of comb and you're seeing great laying capability about this time of year in climates six to five to possibly four. Six is pushing it because you guys are already in the honey flow season and people down in three and four are basically just getting their bees now and installing them. So on your package bees, if you've installed them correctly, you've probably been in your one month to at least two days of package installation. And this is a good time to start doing your preventive maintenance. Same thing with the nook box, that you've already seen brood patterns and stuff. Brood means opportunity for mites. So still, at this point in time, make sure all your entranceways are closed and small, allowing your bees to keep protection going as they're growing, either from the nook or from the package. Right now, your rhubarb leaves should be about the size of your hand. This is a great time to start making a oleic acid natural mix from rhubarb leaves. Taking rhubarb right now and picking it and putting it in a blender, blending it so you could get at least one full cup of a pureed pulpus of this mix of rhubarb leaves that you blended. Add one teaspoon of salt, two tablespoons of a good vodka, 100 proof, and shake that all up and mix it together. Now what you've done is you've added a mineral and an alcohol base to start dissolving the rhubarb leaves to start releasing more of the oleic acid. Pour this in a sandwich bag, twisting it, cutting the small corner off, making it like a pastry bag. When going out to your beehives to make sure everything's closed and that you're feeding them well, if you're going to use your package, and that's starting to see brood laying and some of the brood getting capped. Now is a good time at the entrance ways to put a little bit of this down at the bottom for the bees to crawl over it and on top of the frames before adding a new box. That way the bees crawl over it and it's releasing some of the oleic acid, oleic acid into the brood nesting, help killing and destroying some of the mites at early phase. This is also the same with a nook box. Try to add this like a pastry on top of the frames along the bottom and on top of the new frames that you're adding on the next box, allowing it to exhaust and fumigate the hive slowly over time. This isn't a complete gassing method like crystallization, but this is a slow release over time. The bees will chew it up because it's got mineral in it, and the vodka will slowly dissipate, which causes activation to make the oleic release from the rhubarb leaves. So now we have a small entranceway. We're starting to already vaporize the brood nesting. We're starting to do control. Small entranceways allows hive beetle not to get in as well as wax moth. And controlling with the fuming arms will help us with mite control. So we're doing preventative maintenance right now naturally this way. Now if you've come out of spring and you're looking to do this, one great way to get your bees on a great track of not using pesticide management with pesticide control and chemicals is to shake your bees. Right now is a good time to break the pattern. So if you're seeing queen cells in a hive that you brought out, now is the time to split that hive and to make more. Disrupt the brooding pattern. That's the best way that I can describe this. If you've ever heard of the Tervoff split, it's about shaking the bees out on a board and allowing them to crawl back in, leaving about an, oh, I'd say 
nine inch space from the hive to the walking board. Nurse bees cannot fly yet and will be trapped on the board with the queen that you just dropped on it. They will now form a new colony. All the other bees that are worker bees will go back to the original hive and go back in, trying to cover the brood, keeping it warm. They will also take some of the larvae and stuff in there and make a new queen. You've just split the hive. By the time this brood hatches that's in the hive and they make a new queen, the mites have nowhere to go because there's no laying going on and you've just disrupted the laying pattern of the mites. This is a great preventative way to stop mites at the early starting of the year. Also adding the rhubarb leaf mixture, you're going to help with your bees on a new segment after doing a quick split. So disrupting the brooding pattern helps destroy mites growth. So I just wanted to throw out right now, what are you supposed to be doing to do some preventative maintenance and getting growth? Make sure you're feeding a good mixture of pollen and feed to your hives from last year, the nooks that you've installed, and your new packages. Right now, keep their entranceways small while they grow. Make sure that you're adding some sort of preventative maintenance. And I'm not saying gas them, but try to use some more natural methods. Right now, I've noticed my bees chewing on the rhubarb leaves, getting the water dew on them, not only getting water, but activating some of the all like already helping themselves, bringing it back to the nest, helping them and their colony. So these are things I want you to think about. If they're doing it naturally, we can help this because anytime you remove the bees from the tree, you've already stopped treatment-free beekeeping. There is no organic or treatment-free beekeeping unless you leave the bees in the tree or where they're found building naturally. Once you move them and put them in a box, you've already treated them. So let's treat them well. Let's help them grow. And let's get some preventative maintenance out there to kind of get them growing. So splits, packages, and everything, I think this is a good way to get going. You start your splits. You're disrupting brood patterns. And it's going to help you grow at a nice rate and not lose your bees from swarming early on or have them leave with mites or other pests to other hives. Hey, I'm your buddy Michael Jordan with AB Friendly Company. Hopefully this is a good tip to get kind of started now that you've got your bees or you've had them over a year and they've winterized and what you wanted to start doing to get them growing. Well, as always, buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect because it's coming out right new for the spring and it's going to help you with your allergies. Buy it from a small industry. Help them grow to be the better beekeepers and stewards of the land. And always, help your fellow man. Because some of the best help I'm getting right now are from high school students teaching me as much as I'm teaching them. Have a blessed day. Next up, my good friend Doc Bones is going to give us an answer to a concern about nail fungal infections if medical, uh, prof you know, professional medical treatment is not available, long-term grid-down type scenario. Hi, Joe Walton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Kate in Germany. How would you prepare to treat fungal infections of either the skin or toenails when in a situation without access to a doctor 
or specific prescriptions. I know people who have recurrent issues with both fungal infections to skin and nails. From what I know, they're not directly painful, but maybe a sign of a weakened immune system can be uncomfortable and widespread to many people and persistent. Where I am in Germany, medications generally available over the counter, but it's advised to seek medical advice first for a clear diagnosis and prescription. I'm wondering how you would advise to deal with fungal infections if access to medical systems wasn't available. Specifically, can we use medicinal herbs for that purpose and or strengthening the immune system? Or is a more simple stocking up of over-the-counter medications the only option? Thanks, Kate. Kate, athlete's foot, also known as tinea pedis, is an infection of the skin caused by a type of fungus known as trichophyton. This is usually seen between the toes and on the toenails, and you might also see it on other parts of the feet, or maybe even on the hands, usually between the fingers, if it occurs there. Fungal infections like athlete's foot are contagious and are passed by sharing shoes or socks or even by wet surfaces such as shower floors. Those people that are affected by athlete's foot may find themselves also with other fungal infections such as ringworm or jock itch. What are risk factors for fungal infections on your feet? Any fungal infection is made worse by certain conditions, moist conditions mostly. These people that are in moist conditions usually spend long hours in closed shoes, keep their feet wet for prolonged periods of time, have had a tendency to get cuts on their feet and on their hands, and maybe perspire a lot. Now, to make a diagnosis, look for flaky skin between the toes or fingers. The skin may appear red and the nails somewhat discolored. You may also notice itching or burning in the affected areas, and that could be sometimes pretty severe. If the skin has been traumatized by scratching, you might see some fluid drainage. Often, the damage caused by scratching is worse than the infection itself. If the condition is mild, keeping your feet clean and dry may be enough to allow a slow improvement of the condition. Oftentimes, however, a topical antifungal ointment or powder, such as myconazole or clotrimazole, are required to eliminate the condition. In the worst cases, oral prescription antifungals, such as fluconazole, are needed. Now, don't use anti-itching creams very often as it keeps the area moist and may delay healing. Patience is a virtue when it comes to monitoring the healing process for fungal infections. It may take more than a month for a significant case of athlete's foot to resolve. Now, you talk about what home remedies you can use. There are many home remedies for fungal infections, especially ones that affect the feet. A favorite one involves placing tea tree oil liberally to a foot bath and soaking for about 20 minutes or so. Dry the feet well afterwards and then apply a few drops of tea tree oil to the affected area. You should repeat this process about twice daily and try to keep the area as dry as possible in between. For prevention of future outbreaks of athlete's foot, you might apply a little tea tree oil once a week before putting on your socks and shoes. It's a good idea to give yourself a week of rest, by the way, from this treatment about every three to four weeks. There are other essential oils that may be helpful in a foot bath. A partial list includes, well, of course, tea tree, which I just mentioned, cinnamon bark, lemongrass, rosemary oil, clove oil, oregano oil, peppermint oil, lavender, thyme, myrrh, calendula, and geranium. Use 10 to 12 drops in a hot foot bath with about 1 to 2 tablespoons of Epsom salts for about 20 minutes. It's important to note that some oils require a dilution with a carrier oil like almond, coconut, or olive. Use this twice daily before putting on clean socks. Make sure the socks are dry. Other methods use things like grapeseed extract. In this situation, you would mix 20 drops in two cups of water in a spray bottle and you spray your feet twice daily for about three weeks for athlete's foot. You spray the inside of your shoes, by the way, with this mixture as well. You might add 20 drops of grapeseed extract 
to the final rinse cycle of your socks and underwear to allow the clothes to rest in the rinse water for about 10 minutes. If you can do that, that would be great. By the way, these items should be washed in the hottest water possible. Keep your feet, of course, as dry as possible between treatments. And it's also a good idea, like with the oil treatments, to give yourself a week of rest from this treatment every three to four weeks. There are, of course, warm compresses that you can use or herbal baths. They're very soothing, and they may help treat uh, fungal infections. They've used garlic for that, ginger, uh, black walnut, echinacea, fennel, apple cider vinegar, golden seal, thyme, mustard powder, baking soda, even half hydrogen peroxide and half water in a mixture. Raw, unprocessed honey is an excellent antifungal. Before you go to bed, you might cover the affected area with a thin layer of raw, unprocessed honey and cover with loose socks. Colloidal silver might be effective. You apply a thick coating of the gel to the area and allow it to dry. Internal ingestion of this is not really suggested for this purpose. Boric acid and rubbing alcohol, that can be mixed in a ratio of two teaspoons of boric acid to one cup of rubbing alcohol, and then apply that with cotton swabs or Q-tips twice daily. Aloe vera gel, very soothing to cracked peeling and open areas of a chronic infection. Apply that twice daily between treatment applications of maybe the -the over-the-counter medications. Dry applications of various powders might be good to keep the skin dry and help prevent recurrences. Here are some suggestions. Gold bond medicated powder. Uh, crushed aspirin tablets made into a powder. You might use that. You apply that three times daily to the affected areas. Garlic powder has been used. Baking soda, cornstarch, a number of things have been used for this. Fungal infections can be difficult to eliminate and treat. Your solution may be a different combination of remedies than somebody else's. Each individual is unique. Oh, one other thing. Urinating on your feet in the shower does not work. Urine isn't concentrated enough to make a difference. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook, available even in Germany, by the way, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. Remember to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Don't forget the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in our store. All right, next up I have a question for Nick Ferguson on rabbit cages and keeping your rabbits nice and cool. Hey, hey, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com, and I have an email from Jennifer about cooling rabbits. I'll just read her email real quick so you have the context. Would ground contact rabbit cages be an inconvenience? Instead of cooling meat rabbits by putting two liter bottles in their cages, I thought it might build the hutches so they have access to the ground. Besides the obvious concerns like needing to bury wire to keep them from digging out, would it be too inconvenient to care for the rabbits with a ground contact hutch? Would cleaning, feeding, maintenance, etc. suddenly become a hassle if it were on the ground level? Would weather changes suddenly become more of a concern? Parasites... Feeding trays and water could still be kept higher up with use of a ramp, which would minimize bending over. An above-ground platform could be added to keep them out of mud. I was thinking of building something similar to this picture. And she has a picture, and it looks like uh, three-quarters of it is enclosed on the top section. It's all wood with a wire mesh door and a bottom section that is wood along the back, and three-quarters of... The rest of it are wire mesh sides with a ramp going up to the top area, just to give you a mental picture. Am I thinking too much into this? Mostly, I want to avoid giving them two-liter bottles and fans to keep them cool. 
I'm assuming she's talking about uh, two-liter bottles of ice and fans to keep them cool. I'd rather they keep cool the natural way. Thanks, Jen. Great questions. You can use cages like that, but you should move them daily, and you will have to include a wire mesh floor on the bottom to keep them predator-proof. It wouldn't be burying the wire mesh. It would be keeping wire mesh on the floor so that you could move it every day. Now... My answers are going to be entirely based on my own experience and worldview, so take it with a handful of salt and your mileage may vary. I personally would not use cages like you described. In my years of keeping rabbits, I've always kept mine suspended above the ground with full wire mesh cages, top, sides, and bottom, and metal or plastic roofing overhead, or full wire mesh cages suspended in a barn or shed always off the ground and in a very shady area. Not only was the shed, the shed in full shade, say that ten times fast, for the whole day, but they were there in the shade of the building, in the shade of some trees. I've never used ice bottles or any active cooling system to keep my rabbits cool when they've been in cages like that. I have done so when they've been in transport in smaller cages where they couldn't kind of stretch out as much, but... I never saw the need for it in the cages like I use. So let's get into a couple of the reasons you might want to do the same as me. I live in Louisiana where it's hot and humid for at least half of the year. So if you live in a chillier or more coastal region, you'll probably have an easier time of keeping them cool enough. Now, one mark against ground contact is coccidiosis. There's a bacteria called coccidia that can kill your rabbits. So... If your rabbits are touching the ground and aren't being rotated every day, you almost assuredly will have coccidia problems. You can do ground contact with a rabbit tractor, kind of like a chicken tractor, but you'll have to put down down wire for the floor to keep them from digging out and to protect them from predators digging under the cage. Now, you're, they're still not going to be able to like dig a little depression to snuggle into the ground to get cool. They're going to want to dig a tunnel, a uh, a hole in the ground to stay cool during the day. So it's not going to be that much better. Now, you could keep them in a centrally located place with ground contact that is a concrete floor. But you're going to have to hose that off every day to keep the urine and droppings rinsed away so the cages and the concrete stay sanitary. And they could cool off like that. Um, you could do like I've planned on doing. Well, not planned necessarily, but I've uh, imagined um, putting in my rabbit cages on a north-facing retaining wall, earth retaining wall, with something like... 12-inch concrete culverts that are capped on the far side at a slightly upward slope, set those into the earth retaining wall. The rabbits can get into the slightly upward sloping concrete section, but they can't get into any soil because it's capped on the other end. And they shouldn't make any messes in the fake den um, because they don't like urinating and defecating in their den. So they should be able to lay on that cool concrete that is a fake den and use the thermal sink of the earth to keep cooler. Now, that concrete culvert would extend slightly into the wire cages, 
And that's just one of my ideas for making use of a north-facing earthen wall or retaining wall. I haven't vetted the idea fully yet, but it seems like a solid one in theory. So, like I said, try it at your own risk. I think it sounds like a great idea, but I have not tried it and vetted it out to make sure that there aren't problems. But I can't really see any problems with it. Um, so, all those ideas and theories aside... I honestly just cull any rabbits that have issues with the heat, and I keep breeding for health and vigor. They breed like rabbits. You can get a lot of generations in, so you will eventually end up with some great rabbits that don't have any problems with heat. Look for people who breed rabbits the same way, and you'll probably start out with stock that is pretty heat tolerant. Now, I will say this. The males normally go sterile during the summer, and the females will sometimes abandon litters during the hot times of the year. Maybe they will you know, have the babies outside of the nest box. There's a whole bunch of different things that they might do um, that is, you know, it's survival instinct. They know they can't take care of them very well during those, you know, triple-digit temps, so they kick them out. They don't let them nurse. So... You might want to take the summer off of breeding if you're not actively cooling the animals. That kind of gives them a chance to rest and recuperate, gain some body condition, you know, gain some weight. If you're determined to keep up production through the summer months, then keep a breeding male in a hutch indoors like a pet rabbit, where the air conditioning will keep him from going sterile. And then you can install fans and maybe a fogger to reduce the air temps in the rabbit shelter. Don't let them get wet. You just want to knock the temperature down without getting everything wet and soggy. And that way the does will be more comfortable and more likely to have a successful litter through the summer months. Now, with all that said, I do know of some people keeping rabbits in colonies where they have access to soil and make dens and all that. Some love the method. Others say it's disastrous. I haven't tried it. So if that appeals to you, then I do a search online for keeping rabbits in a colony. Those are the key words I would use. That's the phrase, keeping rabbits in a colony. I may try it in the future when I have the infrastructure to keep them safe and healthy, but until then... Man, I've found it's just safest and healthiest for the animals to be kept safe in a 100% wire mesh enclosure. I hope that answers your question, Jen. If you have any more questions or want to discuss keeping rabbits, head over to the Homegrown Liberty Group on Facebook and start a discussion. Thanks for the great question, guys. Do good things. Okay, so my only addition there is that recently I got... Uh, an email from Jeff Lott and, and what he calls his Friday Five. He he does these semi-weekly emails. They don't come out every week, but it seems most weeks you get the Friday Five. And on, what that means on Friday, you get an email, and there'll be five things in the email. Like Jeff took some marketing classes and is doing well with them. Uh, and one recent one was on an update to Greening the Desert 2. Now, Greening the Desert was the original video that somebody sent me way, way back in 2008, almost 10 years ago now, that said, hey, check what this this crazy Australian dude is doing in Jordan. And it was this video, and it was pretty poorly made. Again, just think of the time. It was over 10 years ago that the video had been made uh, of what Jeff had done on a project in the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan. And it was a piece of land that was given to them to, to prove what they could do, but it wasn't actually given to them in perpetuity, and they did some amazing things with it, but then when it went back to others, others did not maintain it. And they, they procured a second location permanently that they called the Greening the Desert 2 Project. 
And that's been going on for many years now. And they do a lot of training and permaculture design courses and stuff at the uh, Greening the Desert 2 site. And it's come a long, long way since they first started doing it. Well, they they just did a video. I think the footage is from like a year, year and a half ago. But they finally got it, you know, they had so much going on. They finally got it put together. And they kind of give an overview of where is this site at today and what does it look like today and how are they running. And it was fascinating. The reason I bring it up in conjunction with Nick Ferguson's answer is in this whole system that they have, they're utilizing some small livestock and chief among them chickens to process compost and rabbits. And the rabbits are pro providing manure that the chicken are pro chickens are processing within their composting system that's being fed back into the total system that's growing all the vegetative crops, perennials and annuals. Well, I, I really like the way that The systems were set up, and it reminds me a lot in some ways, though totally different construction technology, of the chicken and rabbit housing. And the rabbits are actually being housed in a colony. And I've always thought there were problems with that, but when I look at what they're doing here, it's working really good. Now, the one thing we do have to think about tempering against Nick Ferguson's remarks is that this is a very dry, non-humid environment, and some of the health concerns Nick brought up may simply be less of a concern in this colony environment in such an arid climate. Additionally, since we are function stacking and putting chickens and rabbits together, we are using one animal to break the other animal's potential disease cycle. So I'm not saying to do this. I am saying that it may be something you want to look at, and it may be something you can emulate, Because these rabbits are not in cages as we think of cages at all. They're in basically this great big kind of uh, stucco, for lack of a better term, uh, concrete type enclosure with burrows. And as Nick said, you don't have to worry about rabbits crapping and peeing in their burrows because they have innate intelligence that says basically don't crap where you eat and where you sleep. So... In addition to Nick's advice, you may want to take a look at this video by Jeff Lott and see if maybe this type of technology will work for you, whether you are the person that came up with the question or maybe someone else looking at doing this. As I have kept chickens and quail in an aviary, uh, I've had a problem, and that is the chickens eating the quail's eggs and rendering the quail fairly much pets at this point. But I do like the whole way this is done. I have no concerns with them damaging anything. They do whatever I want them to do. They compost stuff for me. They don't cause any problems. I get shade for my plants. I get a nice place for my birds. I don't have any disease problems. It works really, really good. And it, you know, it has me thinking like my next livestock project is probably going to involve pigeons and, and letting them go out and forage for themselves and something similar. So if you can do things like this, What you find is it usually takes more work to set it up, but then it takes far less work to maintain it. You will give some things up, like like quail, if they were in, in little stack cages. I would have had the bunch. One night what happened is I let the door open. I have this latch, and then I have a thing that closes the latch, and it's basically a, like a wood clamp to make sure the latch doesn't unlatch. And I didn't put it on, and it was really windy that night, and the wind blew and vibrated the door back and forth, and a latch unlatched. And Dorothy and I were like, hey, it's pretty nice today. Why don't we take a walk? So we take a walk, and we're walking through the food forest. And I start seeing, like, movement up ahead. And it's like these brown things moving. And we realize it's the four Bantam chickens. And they're out and about. And we round them up and get them back in the aviary. 
Uh, and we did a quail head count, and there were quite a few missing that bailed out as well. And unlike the chickens, they don't all stick together, and they don't know what they're doing. And uh, I'll just say that Lucy ate quite a few quail, and I didn't come down on her because you can't expect anything else. And uh, so that happened over a couple of days. So uh, I'm not going to say it's without problems, but, you know, that's a that's a user error, right? And we have ways we can correct some of these other things we just haven't got to yet because they haven't been important to us recently. So if you could do colony raising of rabbits or colony raising of quail, in the end, it ends up being less work if you set the system up properly. And then if you have the discipline to follow your own rules like, hey, Jack, you dummy, put the clamp on the door before you leave. Next, I have a, a Harris rant that starts with a... Question that I'm going to admit, when I sent it to Harris, I'm like, this is going to be a rant. I didn't think it was going to be this kind of rant. Actually, this is a very productive rant. A uh, guy wants to take uh, a CPAP machine hiking. This is not practical. And I figured it would come down to a lesson in thermodynamics and energy and things like that. And maybe he would go too far and maybe I would have to pin his ears back and say, hey, we've got to redo this. But it, it ended up being a totally different kind of rant that... If he's ranting at anybody, he's also ranting at himself. And I think it's a very teachable moment here. And I think it's Steve showing how much he cares about people and their long-term happiness and health. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Steve, and I'll come back with the thoughts he asks me for at the end of it. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in for the expert panel to answer your question. I have a difficult question, and I'm going to be absolutely blunt and harsh. Well, not really harsh. But Jack will need to um, give some good sage advice after this one because uh, Jack is an absolute wizard when it comes to food and health, and that is the problem. Adam in Northern California writes, Steve, CPAP on the go. I have heard you mention on several occasions that you use a CPAP machine. For those of you who don't know what this is, this is a forced air blowing device that goes to a mask that makes positive pressure in the mask over your face and mouth such that you won't snore and you won't have trouble breathing in the middle of the night. When I had my test done, I was waking myself up 70 times an hour. After I had my first night of sleep on a CPAP, I was like, I'm awake. I haven't felt like this in 10 years. My God, I'm awake. It is completely life-changing. So he goes on. Can you please provide the details for how you power it when off the grid? Maybe a stripped-down kit that one could build to power just a CPAP machine. I have a fantasy that maybe I could find a way to take one on a backpacking trip with one, but I think that the weight of the battery in the inverter plus panels, <laughs> you want solar panels to recharge your CPAP. <laughs> Sorry, Charlie. Um, would make it impractical. Would be great if I'm wrong. Can you send the details on the machine if needed? Thanks. One, how do I power my CPAP when I'm off grid? I don't go off grid with my CPAP machine. I haven't in a long time. If I did, I would be powering it with a generator or I would be powering it with two golf cart batteries or one big deep cycle Group 27 or Group 29 marine battery. 
depending on the pressure of your CPAP machine, which can range from 3 centimeters of water column to 20 inches of water, sorry, 20 centimeters of water column. So 3 centimeters of water column to 20 centimeters of water column. Why they didn't do an inches of water column, which is the world standard, I don't know, but whatever. Obviously, the higher the pressure, the more the power draws. I'm on between 14 and 20 centimeters of water column, so my draw is a lot more power. If I absolutely had to, it would be off of a vehicle at the campsite and on an inverter clamped onto the vehicle. And even then, I would get up in the middle of the night, start the car for a half hour, make sure the battery was recharged, and keep on going. There are lithium-ion batteries made for these CPAP machines. Now, the CPAP machine is four to five, $600. The battery, which will last you six to eight hours, closer to six, maybe as low as four to five, depending upon your pressure, costs between $250 and $400 each, each. So if you're going on a seven-night trip, you better be carrying seven lithium-ion batteries. And though they're lighter than lead-acid, you're still carrying seven lithium-ion batteries, and you're probably not getting a full night's sleep. But six hours, I guess you can live with that to go out into the woods. But I'm talking, we're talking Herculean efforts here in order just to transport a CPAP and to power it while you're trying to go on a hike. Your only really recourse is to vehicle camp, and that is to go to a campground, especially one with electricity for your site, like an RV site, and plug in and do that. Go out for a day hike, come back, spend time with the kids, the grandkids, go fishing, you know, do what you can. But if you are so fat that you cannot sleep without a CPAP machine. And the majority of the reasons you have a CPAP is due to weight, okay? There are some other people that have legitimate medical issues with their throat, and they're on a CPAP, and they're as thin as a rail. But for most of us, it's our own stupid fault for becoming so fat over, like, the period of a decade. So, this is a warning to any of you who are gaining weight or who are slim and thinking of changing your diet. Do not get fat. You will start with diabetes. You'll start with CPAP, sleep apnea. You will get into blood sugar issues. You will get into endurance issues, weight issues, heart issues. Uh, you name it. Do not get fat. Do not drink soda with sugar in it, especially. Buddy of mine calls it diabetes in a bottle. Jack, please talk. Seriously, to some of us fat, overweight, sons of bitches, about protein power, you know, good diet, what we can do. I mean, what's one of the jack reason Jack is into permaculture? Not only do you have a food forest that you can go and harvest from if there's a power outage and extend your food stores, like, oh, boy, raspberries, strawberries, peaches, plums. I mean, that supplements your diet very good. But he's telling you how to raise these things in a permaculture environment, which is a much more natural environment 
giving you a higher quality product and a higher quality product for your body so you don't get so fat. It's hard to eat apples and pears and oranges and get fat because of the amount of few amount of calories that are in them. And then for things like apples and pears, the fiber comes along with the sugar to help for the metabolization of the sugar, which goes along with the Linus guy who's famous for sugar on YouTube. If you have destroyed your body, you have to admit there are things you can no longer do anymore. And unfortunately, hiking for more than a day is going to be one of them. And even hiking for a day, especially in a hot environment or a cold, dry environment, just might be too much stress for your body and you're in trouble. If you're going to go hiking for a day, I would spend two months of walking around uh, your house in your block getting ready for such an endeavor such that you could do it. But if you wanted to do it, the five $600 CPAP machine with the two, three, four, five hundred $500 batteries, that would be a potential answer for you. You are not going to do it with lead acid. You are not going to do it with solar. You m can do it with your car. You can do it with a Harris battery bank. You can do it with a generator. You can do it with shore power. But none of the other things are going to work. I'm telling you this because I'm in that bad of a situation right now. I don't want you to be for those who are like, like, yo, I put on 20 pounds. I don't. It gets away, okay? Those of you who are like me who are too fat, start getting less fat or we're going to have a short lifespan. And I want to stick around and do some more really great stuff. And I'm out riding my bike. God, I had a bad bike accident too. Anyways, um, that's a short story on CPAP machines. If you have anything that you want to know more about CPAPs or any ideas, just email me personally, okay? It's confidential. You can reach out and ask me. I might be able to find a solution for you for your unique situation. I am here to help you. Just go to stephen1234.com, get my email in the upper right-hand question, put CPAP in the subject line, and, you know, give me your, your question and your details and I will personally help you and also include your phone number because sometimes I just don't have time to type. I will just call you and like, you know, point you in the right direction on Amazon or whatever, or whatever I can help you to do. Um, especially with like oxygen concentrators for other older people. I can definitely help you with that. I know a lot about oxygen concentrators, even though I don't use one. So anyways, good luck. God bless. Jack, take it away. Help us, please. So, so let's let's start out with something that might be for some people a simple solution to this problem without getting into the health aspects, which which I will because Steve asked me to in just a second. So, as Steve mentioned, there are people on CPAP machines that are thin. There are people on CPAP machines that are not morbidly obese that are just a little bit overweight. There's a lot of different reasons that people can have problems with snoring beyond being a complete lardass. And a lot of times it, it can even be that there's this 
an uh, internal problem with structure of the throat, etc., that's exasperated by being overweight, but maybe not that overweight, the type of overweight that Steve is talking about, and to be very, very fair to him for his honesty, the type of overweight that he is. And so you can maybe be someone that's maybe 20 pounds overweight, maybe 15 pounds overweight, that if you were at a good weight for yourself. And, and what the government says you should weigh is irrelevant to me. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, I have struggled with weight going up and down, and when I get to the health part, I'm going to tell you that paleo, low-carb, uh, keto, all that stuff has never failed me. I have failed it at times. I have fallen off the wagon, not done it, and when you eat improperly, you gain weight. That's how you get there in the first place. Um, but when the when I am in really what I consider like great shape, when I look kind of optimum, and I'm about 10, 15 over this right now, it's about 220 pounds. At 220 pounds, I look damn lean. I am a big guy. I have very broad shoulders. Um, when I was in the Army and I was doing PT every day, and I was eating right, and I was 19 years old, I always had to take what they called a tape test. And that was because I was always overweight, according to the chart, but I always passed the tape test with flying colors, which measured what is your actual body fat. I am a stocky, broad guy. I have My skeleton weighs almost as much, I think, as the government says I should weigh. On that note, the government says I should weigh 165 pounds. I was not 165 pounds when I was a freaking sophomore in high school. And I was shorter and I was really lean. When I got off of the Appalachian Trail after hiking from Pennsylvania to freaking New Hampshire, I weighed 195 pounds. If I was 165 pounds, I would look like I was in a concentration camp. So when I say a good weight for you, I don't mean what the government says you should weigh. I mean what you really should weigh based on body fat. And if you, you, if you can be in a position where you have either snoring problems where you are at a good weight for yourself, or you can be in a position where you have snoring problems where you are somewhat overweight but not the type of overweight Steve's talking about. Or it can be because you're truly overweight. But in all of those situations, you may find that you get immense relief from your snoring problems with a mouthpiece. Now, personally for me, when I lost the weight, it stopped being a problem. So I didn't get into figuring out which one to use. But I did research how they work, and I believe they work, and I understand how they work. And this may be something that any of you struggling with snoring that causes sleep apnea, which is the real problem, can take a look at. What these mouthpieces do is they hold your lower jaw slightly forward of your upper jaw. Okay? Now, you might think, well, that's no big deal. But here's what you do to figure out if it'll work for you. Lay flat on your back. Let your body relax as though you're going to go to sleep. And intentionally try to snore. And you'll probably make a sound like this. Okay? Then, jut your lower jaw a little bit forward of your upper jaw. And try to snore. And if I do that, I make a sound like this. You can't hear it, can you? I physically cannot intentionally snore with that lower jaw protruded past the upper jaw just a little bit. And the reason is what happens is the part of the throat that closes is held open. So I don't have anywhere for you to start. I believe the mouthpiece that I researched that, that led me to this 
conclusion that they probably do work was called Pure Sleep, but I'm not sure about that. If anybody uses one and has positive results, I'd like to hear from it. I cannot give you a testimonial to it because I haven't tried it. But I understand the concept of it, and, it, and the, the honest company selling these mouthpieces all tell you to take that test for yourself, and they say, if this works for you, then the mouthpiece will work for you. And the dishonest ones just say, it cures everything, including cancer and butt cancer, right? It doesn't, right? But that might be something to look at specifically for if you use a sleep CPAP machine as a backup when you can't. And I believe that doctors are highly influenced by money, even the ones that believe themselves not to be. And there's not a lot of money in selling these mouthpieces compared to selling a prescription for a CPAP machine paid for by an insurance company. I'll just leave it at that. So that's something to check out. There's also surgery that can be done with these small implants that are placed in the throat that create a rigid environment for the throat. This is very safe. It's you know it's an in and out, 30 minute process, including your time in the waiting room. That it does wonders for people. So I would look into other things. Now let's turn to the true question that Steve was throwing at me, which is, you're a fat ass. What do you do about it? I mean, when you are really out of shape. You're winded if you try to walk a few miles, that type of thing. If you want to save your life, you want to cure your type 2 diabetes, and don't write me and be hateful and say, well, I have type 2 diabetes and I'm not overweight, you are one-tenth of one percent of the people with type 2 diabetes. There have been studies done. They get all these people together, random sample, thousand people have type 2 diabetes. They put them in a fat camp, basically. They limit their food to an 850-calorie-a-day diet. They keep them in there for 90 days, and they have 100% of them do not have type 2 diabetes at the end of that period. Because type 2 diabetes isn't really diabetes. I know you think it is, but it's not. Type 1 diabetes is diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is a, a insulin resistance caused by diet. It, it, it is the failure of the body to make a proper balance of insulin and glucagon because of diet. It is a lifestyle disease. It is not something you get. Except for you one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent people that write me with hate mail. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the out. The rest of you, you're fat. That's why you have type 2 diabetes. And the best way I know is the restriction of carbohydrate. Period. It works. It works for everybody that does it. And when people say, well, it only works until you stop doing it. Well, not eating Krispy Kremes only works until you start, eating Krispy, you know, until you start stop not eating Krispy Kremes. When you start shoving Krispy Kremes in your face again, the not eating Krispy Kremes portion of your diet stops working. So my impetus here is your life duration and the quality of that duration. And, and, and I am a person who will admit, I struggled with weight. I put it on, I took it off, I put it on, I took it off. It is this time around that I have a willpower that is, is just totally different. And if anything ever caves it in, it's the fact that we have these dead-gone kids here, and my wife doesn't believe that they can live keto and paleo too, and they can, especially just for the time that they're here. So we have kid crap here that occasionally tempts me, but overall I'm pretty solid. We went out to the restaurant that uh, we're going to do the party I talked about yesterday at, And uh, because we were renting the room and all signed a contract, after dinner they brought us this big chocolate cake thing, and Dorothy and I were like, I'm sorry, we can't eat that. You know, and they kind of, it's kind of like you feel guilty because they put all this in it. Well, we just wanted you to have something. Like, no. And I, what my exact words were, you know, I, I, I've taken off in, in this latest, and I told this guy, over 40 pounds, and I'm not putting one of it back on. And I, I think it's a lot like paying off a debt 
You know, like I say, don't 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 just take a home equity loan and pay your debt off. Sometimes mathematically that makes sense, but it, it generally doesn't work. When you actually go through it and you actually feel the difference, then you end up at a point where like I'm I'm not doing this anymore. I refuse to do this anymore. I refuse to be this anymore. And, and I, I really call on you. Don't worry about what Steve said about food forests and growing your own food. It doesn't matter when it comes to weight loss. Some of the people out there today, and there's one guy, I can't think of his name, that my wife's following now for keto and all. And I think a lot of them are full of shit. You know, He's like, well, you need to make sure this is organic and this is that. Look, I, I think those are fine health choices, but as far as losing weight, If you keep your carbs under 20 freaking carbs a day and you don't drink too much alcohol and you get a reasonable amount of exercise, you're going to lose freaking weight. And if you're a fat ass, you're going to lose it really, really fast. And I don't care if you're eating feedlot beef. This is a biochemical thing based on the type of nutrient, not the quality of nutrient that you're taking in and how your body is going to work. And it is going to produce... Uh, hormones at a level that are going to balance things out and begin to make you start burning fat. And the total number of people I know that have tried a carbohydrate-restrictive diet, whether it's Protein Power, whether it's Atkins, whether it's Paleo, whether it's Primo, whether it's Keto, you, I don't care which one it is. Severe carbohydrate restriction with significant fat caloric intake 100% who actually did it by the numbers lost significant weight, more so than any other method that I've ever seen. And I would challenge any of you out there that feel this way, that when Steve was going fat-ass, that that hurts a little bit. Because it does. When you're carrying that extra weight, especially when you didn't your whole life, especially when you used to be athletic, you know, especially when you used to be a guy that could hike 1,300 miles in a couple months. It hurts when you think of yourself that way. Well, do something with it, damn it. Take that pain and channel it into action. And take your life back, because if you don't, then the system that's fed all this processed shit to you is going to take your life from you. By the way, it just came out recently that all this shit the government's been telling us for 40 years about cutting fat and increasing our bread and grains and stuff like that is wrong. And it's why we have an epidemic of obesity. Americans have actually followed. Now, there are people that are shoving down McDonald's every day eating 17 Big Macs. That happens. But in general, society has followed the doctors and the government's advice of a bread-based, grain-based diet and, it is, and low fat, and it has resulted in an epidemic of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease, and, and autoimmune inflammation-based disorders. They have lied to you. They have screwed you. They have effed you in the A, okay? So stop listening to their bullshit and start eating the way humans were designed to eat. We are designed to club shit, turn rocks over, find bugs, eat them. That's how we came along as a species. We evolved mentally when we started following predators around, cracking the bones on carcasses and sucking the marrow out of bones. That's where we come from. Now, I'm not suggesting you start eating meat and cake buffalo tallow. And, 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 and bone marrow tomorrow, but we can eat analogs to that, and we will be better off for it. So Spirico ran over. Let's talk about something that happened today that I decided would be my segment and do some function stacking. My buddy Neil, who from time to time comes to me for consulting because of the years that we worked together, sent me a simple question today by text. It said, Jack... How do you see blockchain disrupting the recruiting industry? 
Now, Neil made his fortune, and I mean a bloody good fortune, in the recruiting industry. One of his company's data workforce uh, at its height uh, during kind of the technology boom was doing over $65 million in business a year. And, and now still doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to $14 million a year when that industry is nowhere near what it used to be. He's set for life. He doesn't have to work, that type of thing. But he's a serial entrepreneur. And, you know, so he's set. His companies do what they do. And he's doing his own stuff and letting his companies be run by other people. And he's gone into kind of the whole uh, business coaching world. And he's putting together a lot of material. He's doing a lot of volunteer work now. Uh, doing sessions for universities in the UK where they have these guys going for their MBA and stuff and actually giving them some real-world shit instead of the crap they get out of the classroom. So he wanted this material for that and some other things. So again, the question was, how do you see blockchain disrupting the recruiting industry? And I'm going to read for you the two-page brief that I put together for him in response to that. And this is the type of thing, if it was anybody but him, either I wouldn't have done it or I would have charged quite a bit of money for it. The key here is to understand that tokens, coins, etc. need not be monetary instruments. And they also need not be divisible. Additionally, their creation can be automatic and require almost no energy or require significant energy. It is all based on the code. Likely, their total number can be limited to, uh, like Bitcoin, their total number can be limited to, let's say, 21 million units, as in Bitcoin. Or it may be uncapped, and units may be produced at will. Clearly, capping and some sort of energy requirement fit the issuance of a unit that is to be a monetary device, as does divisibility. That said, most uses for blockchain in the future will not be monetary, or will be for internal accounting. Once we establish that, we need to understand the true beauty of all blockchain technology. It is a truth teller. Therefore, it works for monetary exchange. Once this token or coin is produced, it is forever traceable, and it can't be duplicated. We know where it is, where it was, and where it is going, if anywhere, at the same time. So how does that affect recruiting? Well, it is better to ask how it will affect all employment and workflow. To really comprehend that, we need to consider the most currently underutilized piece of blockchain technology, which is smart contracts. While far, far more sophisticated, you can think of those as a binary code at the base. Zero, this thing has not yet happened. One, this thing has happened. As a result, this next thing will happen now. Generally, right now, this is used to execute a payment. Party A contracted Party B to write a program. A smart contract held X amount of Ethereum as a sort of escrow. When the contract is verified as executed, the Ethereum transfers from Party A to Party B. Likewise, if Y amount of time happens and this thing remains undone, the Ethereum transfers back to Party A. The above can be far more sophisticated, as in milestones are set and partial payments made, etc. But the key is this removes the need for third-party mediation between the parties. The contract, acting as an entity, doesn't care if your feelings were hurt. It is not subject to emotion. The contract was or was not executed, and hence, these are the rules that it will follow. In this instance, a third-party arbitrator was eliminated. It doesn't matter if that party was the state 
or a private arbitration company. Either way, the need for it was eliminated. We can now engage in a trustless transaction. It doesn't matter if we know each other. We agree to terms, and a process goes into motion that will execute those terms, period. In time, blockchains will talk to blockchains. Companies like Lisk and Arc are already making that happen as we speak, enabling not only blockchains to talk to other blockchains, but individuals and companies to create their own blockchains with their own parameters as easily as one creates a Facebook group today. What we are talking about then is the elimination of all third parties, be they central banks, recruiters, arbitrators, the state, etc. A system with defined parameters, no longer subject to manipulation by the bigger dog in the fight. Not a utopia or a nirvana, just a series of fields, all with clear defined rules, where the field itself now enforces the rules and never makes a mistake. Some parties may be upset because they didn't read the rule book sufficiently, but the rules will be followed. Now consider the job of a recruiter. Find candidate A, and he needs qualifications X, Y, and Z. A person needs him to do A, B, and C, and that person wants proof of his credentials of X, Y, and Z, and proof in the past he has completed a certain number of A, B, and C tasks. As companies, service providers, and individuals move to blockchains, candidate A will be compensated and judged by the blockchains. Each execution of, of, of a successful this did happen will likely create a non-monetary token of some sort that will attach to him as a reputation. Note the good and the bad will both attach, become immutable and eternal. They are also non-conferable and cannot be counterfeited. This will be our new digital identification and our new digital resume, though far more like a highly detailed CV than a conventional resume. Many safeguard technologies will need to be implemented for privacy here. If you want to hire me as a coder, you need to see my coding stuff and maybe a criminal background stuff. And possibly if I'm subject to any civil judgments, you don't need my total financial history, my medical records, etc. So some mechanism will need to be in place whereby I choose what you see. In the end, if I want to do a project and need five specific people, cross-blockchain tools will locate them, verify them, request their participation, extend them a contract to review, accept their signature, monitor their progress, pay them, fire them and replace them, etc. Unless actual direct conversation is needed with them, I may never even see them or speak to them. I don't care. I want XYZ done. They do it or they don't. If they fail, they get replaced based on the contract I submit to the system. Where in this do I need a recruiter? Where in this do I need a banker? Where in this do I need an arbitrator? Oh, I see. I need capital because I don't have enough to fund the project. So my reputation relevant to that is shared with another system, which, is raise, which raises capital on specific terms based on investors who are willing to fund it. Again, where in this do I need a recruiter? Where in this do I need a banker? Where in this do I need an arbitrator? There are tons of technologies that need developing to make this all work. Government wants deeply to control it, but the problem for the state is all of it is doable via open source, and it can be as public or private as the parties involved wish for it to be. Don't get me wrong, there is plenty of room for deception, 
But every project with any hope of gaining traction and confidence is open source. And that means the code is subject to review by literally millions of people who revel in finding errors or cheating. Their reputations are based on it. Every industry in the world is going to both grow with and be gutted by this technology. Imagine the implications for the world of education alone. Not bad for a redneck hippie duck farmer, huh? Um, this is why I'm excited about blockchain. This is what blockchain is going to do. When people say it's going to be used for everything, I don't think people really understand that. What that really means is it's going to be used for actually everything. For governance. There's your virtual nations. What? Why do we feel that we need a state? Well, because if you do something to me I don't like, there should be a consequence. Well, I, I guess with criminal activity, such as somebody broke in and stole my TV set, there, there could be a while before we could get out of that world. But the majority of what the state is used to mediate today is between individual parties and what we would call civil manners. Or manners that maybe even if the state hands them as, handles them as civil manner, uh, criminal manners would actually be better suited to handle the civil manners. And a lot of the deception that takes place in today is because everybody lies, in the words of Dr. Greg House from the series. right? Everybody lies. But the blockchain is a truth teller. If you said you've done something and it's recorded on blockchain, either this thing did or did not happen. And the potential that that opens up is enormous. So those of you that kind of write off the whole, all the stuff that talks about cryptocurrency, or you're dancing on your heels now because cryptocurrency is currently in a down market, I would just say compared to three years ago, it is still infinitely up. Uh, it is still doing all the things that it's supposed to do. It is still evolving. It is still getting more and more powerful. And yes, as I said, when this, you're going to call it a crash or correction occurred, there was a whole bunch of shit coins out there that serve no purpose other than to be an artificial monetary instrument that will not recover uh, long term. This washed them out. Uh, right now, I think that the Bitcoin market and therefore the entire market is being repressed by futures trading and manipulation. But I also think that can only go so far over time due to limited quantity. And right now, if you suppress Bitcoin, you suppress everything else for the time being. But the underlying technology blockchain is going to be able to do things that most people can't even conceive of why they would want it yet. For instance, I go to a, a store here when I want to pick up a bottle of adult beverage Uh, a liquor store. They have a program for loyalty that gives you discounts. With the technology that ARC is rolling out by the end of summer, they would be able to run their loyalty program on a blockchain. Now, why would they want to do that? Because it prevents, it prevents fraud. It prevents the person that I go down there and buy from all the time from, you know, maybe giving me a few extra points. It makes the points immutable. It makes the points eternal. It makes them able to set rules and parameters for how they're, uh, they're, they're set up. And it allows them to custom tailor a solution very, very quickly uh, that will then be interoperable with other potential retail partners in the future should they decide they want to expand or grow or sell their business. So the question would be, why the hell wouldn't they want to do it? And the only reason they wouldn't want to do it, it's complex and costs a lot of money and you need really smart coders to do it. Well, no, you don't. Not once roll your own blockchain technology comes out. So if you start thinking about how businesses are structured, how they are transferred in ownership, how they are merged, how spinoffs are done, all data management, all reputation management, 
all financial accounting, internal and external, eventually will take place on a blockchain. Because it is a better technology than what we have today. Not because uh, it's cool. Not because everybody wants to make money with it. Because of self-serving reasons. It works better and it will be infinitesimally easy. It will literally be as easy as configuring a Facebook page. That's how, Now, that doesn't mean that some people can't do it better than other people. That doesn't mean that some people won't want special things done to it to go beyond the basics. But it's going to be like that. When, when the Internet really kind of took off in the 90s with, you've got mail, remember those days? Um, people would pay a couple thousand dollars for a website that was even at the time an embarrassment because building a website was complicated. Then came things like Dreamweaver and Frontpage. But then what really happened is things like Blogspot for the individual journaling type stuff and WordPress, and then somebody figured out WordPress could be a website, and then we ended up with things like Joomla and stuff like that, and then we ended up with technologies evolving like Ruby on Rails and, 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 and all types of, you know, ASP and Cold Fusion and all these other types of tech that were kind of spawned off of things like PHP, which was a basic programming tech, uh, and, and all of it got commoditized. And, you know, there are still people today that spend a lot of money on a website. Most of them are stupid unless they need real custom work done to even do it. And if you want a website, you can just have a website tomorrow. And, and, and the only thing that, to make it look a little bit pretty is maybe getting somebody to do some graphics for you. Imagine when blockchain's like that. And we're not five years from that. We're not five months from that. We're probably 50 to 80 days from that, based on the timeline we're getting out of ARC, which is why I'm excited about them as an entity. And they're not going to be the only ones to do it, and they may not be the ones that win that battle. They may not be the WordPress of cryptocurrency. I don't know. But I do know someone's going to do it. And when we have interoperable, interworking blockchains everywhere, and I can sit here and go, well, what I'd really like to do is create this. And I say, I probably need three people to do that. And I make a description and a contract for them. And I send that out to sniff out other blockchains. And it finds and engages with those people who accept those terms. And all those things just happen. How many things that we view as critical to society and business today were just eliminated? And, and, and reality is more than the number of people. Think about Uber. And, you know... The, the concept that Uber drivers do make money despite all the bullshit that comes out of it. The company doesn't make any money. Uber, as a, as a business, loses millions of dollars every year. And Uber is really an investment platform to develop autonomous vehicles to eventually replace the people that are doing the work today. That, that's what Uber really is. But if we were going to have people driving cars for the next 50 years, wouldn't it make sense to eliminate Uber? Doesn't everything I just say actually eliminate Uber? I mean, really, if you think about it, doesn't that just eliminate the need for Uber completely? There's a person that needs a ride. There's a person that wants a ride, that can give a ride. And everything is executed through smart contracts, so the driver has a reputation that's immutable and eternal, and the rate is between them, and there is actually no need for any company to, company to act as an intermediary anymore. 
especially once we go to a full-on kind of digital ID that's not counterfeitable. And now we don't need a criminal background check because if there is criminal activity, it will be appended to their digital ID. Because, yeah, the state will get involved on this on some level. In fact, it may be that you have the ability to allow the state to put that information on your privately created digital ID. And the reason you would do it is if you don't do it, it would show that you didn't do it. Does that make sense? There, there's just so much that has to be developed here, what it's going to be, because it's in, it's in everybody's best interest, including the people doing the work to get it done. Because there's so much money to be made. So that's why it's all going to happen. So I, I thought you guys would get some interest and entertainment out of that, and hopefully some education too. With that, we come to the end of another show. And if you like this show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support my work and the work I do here is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And uh, every day I have an item available for you guys to take a look at it that I personally use. And remember, if you see an item at tspaz.com, it means that not only do I recommend it for you, I've spent my own money on it and I use it, or I wouldn't recommend that you spend your money on it. Today I have a product I've been waiting to bring back for you for a long time because uh, whoever the seller was that, I, that, w that had it when I bought it originally off Amazon stopped repping it and there was only a few like weird th third party sellers with it and it was selling for something stupid like 25 bucks by the time you paid shipping on it. It's made by a company called King Cooker and it is a leg and wing grill rack. And what this does is it lets you either hang chicken legs or chicken wings from this rack so that when you cook it the hot air around them cooks it instead of contact with the grill or a frying pan or a skillet or a griddle or something like that and what this results in is amazingly crispy skin and in the uh, the, the write-up today on it I give you some recipes including uh, my chili garlic pepper oil wings which are just awesome And uh, a link to episode three of Bill Tong for Breakfast, where we made wings using the Walker's Wood Jerk Jamaican Seasoning in this rack. They were off the hook fantastic. It was so good that my buddy David, who does that show with me, went home and ordered one. He's like, I got to get one of these. This is just awesome, the way they come out so crispy. And, and it lets you get a crispy wing or drumstick, but wings are what I do with it mostly, without deep frying it, which is kind of cool. And uh, you can, you know, that way you can put whatever seasoning on it you want to. And think about like when you season wings really, really great. You marinate them and then you let them dry and get tacky. And then you season them and you throw them on the grill and you turn them over and it just all the beautiful lusciousness that you put on there just comes off. And you see this big bare skin spot. You're like, well, I, I, I want to do all that work for. You do this, they cook perfectly. Again, it's made by a company called King Cooker, K-I-N-G-K-O-O-K-E-R. And that's 12 slots, but I've gotten way more than 12 wings on them. I think I've gotten up to 16 wings to hang from them. You can check it out at tspaz.com. And remember, if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. That also, the other way you can help us is become a member of the MSB. If you want to learn more about that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members at, to learn more. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day is a song called Objects in the Rearview Mirror Appear Closer Than They Are by Meatloaf, who was written like much of Meatloaf stuff by Jim Steinman. This song 
on on some level appears to just be kind of hokey, right? Like because there is a point where he just says that over objects in the rearview mirror, clear your clothes, and over and over and over again. But if you actually listen to all the words in the song, this is one of the great meatloaf songs. What this song is really about is how time can almost warp in our minds, and we can have difficulty with the optics of how long ago something really happened. Have you ever, you know, you guys like me that are in your 40s or older, thought about something that happened when you were a teenager and felt like on some levels that was just yesterday? That was just yesterday that I was in that car with my buddies riding around or something like that. But yet something that happened, you know, far closer, maybe 10 years ago, seems forever ago. That, that That's a big part of what this song's about. Um... Objects in a Rearview Mirror was made, again, to be a very passionate song. It might be, according to Steinman, the most passionate song that he has ever put on a record. Um, it really has a lot of imagery in it. And I think that almost all of us, especially if we have any fond memories for those teenage years can really relate to this song, and I think it's a great song for a Friday, by the way, and it is that operatic thing that I, I really think only Meatloaf can do. Here's the interesting thing that I've been thinking about with Meatloaf. You guys that are in kind of my generation and did just like the tail end of the millennials, and then, you know, the, the guys that are like 37 today, uh, and the people are just a little bit older, probably grew up with this music. And it, it, it has this ability to transcend time and take us back to these times that this song's about. And I think that it amazes me how many young people are rediscovering great music from the 70s and 80s and even early 90s today. But it will never mean for them what it means for us. And as our generation passes in time, something new will have to be created to, to create this bridge because... This music doesn't just take us back because of its words and its imagery. It takes us back because it's the music from the time itself. And, it, and as we age on, you know, as the baby boomer, boomers in time begin to pass the torch to the Gen Xers as being the old generation, and that's what's happening, that fades. And it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. With that... I hope you enjoy your Friday and your weekend. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. When the fields were green, the sun was brighter than it's ever been. When I grew up with my best friend, Kenny, we were closest any brothers that you ever knew. It was always summer and the future called. We were ready for adventures and we wanted them all. There was so much left to dream and so much time to make it real. But I can still recall the sting of all the tears when he was gone. They said it crashed and burned. I know I'll never learn why any boy should die so young. We were racing, we were soldiers of fortune. We got in trouble, but we sure got around. There are times I think I see him peeling out of the dark. I think he's It was long ago and it 
and drunken, defeated and corroded by failure and envy and hate There were endless winters and the dreams would freeze Nowhere to hide and no leaves on the trees And my father's eyes were blank as he hit me again and again and again I know I still believe and never let me leave I had to run away Alone. So many threats and fears, so many wasted years before my life became my own. And though the nightmare should be over, some of the terrors are still intact. I'll hear that ugly course and violent voice, and then he grabs me from behind, and then he pulls me back. But it was long ago. Far away, oh God, it seems so very far. And if life is just a highway, then the soul is just a car. And objects in the rearview mirror, they appear closer than they are. And objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are. And objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are. And objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they She always put the top up and the hammer down And she taught me everything I'll ever know About the mystery and the muscle of love The stars would glimmer and the moon would glow I'm in the backseat with my Julie like a Romeo And the signs along the highway all said Caution, kids at play those were the rights of spring And we did everything There was salvation every night We got our dreams reborn And our upholstery 
Closer than they are. 